Welcome to the Ram Iyer Podcast with your host, Ram Iyer, thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. Listen to his engaging conversations with experts from across the world and his personal insights that will help you create a better life, become more successful, and achieve your personal greatness. Now, here's Ram! Welcome to Business Thinking Radio. I'm Ram Ayer, your host and president of the Business Thinking Institute in Princeton. Today's show, 50 Years of Business Wisdom from Dr. Modesto Medik. Dr. Medik goes by the name Mitch. He is the founder of Analog Devices and the president emeritus of Florida International University in Miami which has an enrollment of about 60,000 students. Most people want to be successful, but few rise to the top. The nature of business is competitive, and it ruthlessly prunes people who do not excel and constantly strive for greater excellence. Many follow business fads or the latest guru in the hopes of finding the shortcuts to success, the magical formula. Most business gurus are one-trick ponies, And most business fads are like diet fads. People who chase them rarely achieve success. But there are some foundational truths about business, what works and what doesn't. If a keen intellect watches business people at the highest levels over 50 years, he starts seeing the foundational truths. We have one such person with us today. He has a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate from MIT. Looks like he lived half his life at MIT. And he started MIT, Harvard, and Stanford before he co-founded Analog Devices. He later served as the president of Florida International University for 23 years. He has served on several presidential commissions and advised many American presidents. The main campus of FIU is named after him. He's an entrepreneur, academic researcher, teacher, and community activist. He is a contributing author to 10 books. Mitch serves on the boards of National Semiconductor and Carnival Corporation today. With that introduction, welcome, Mitch. Well, thank you very much, Ram. It's a pleasure to be here. I know these are subjects that we're going to talk about that you've thought also a long time, and you come recommended to me by Hitendra Wadwa, who's one of the leadership experts I most admire in the country. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, in fact, Hitendra and I were at MIT at the same time. So, Mitch, let me start with this. See, the world economy is changing really fast. Many countries are catching up to the United States, which used to be the big dog in town, right? And the Internet has made competition more global. There are many centers of excellence, not just uh, one Silicon Valley or one Route 128. Many Americans at the same time have become complacent. How can American businesses compete in this new global economy? Well, it starts with something that Tom Peters said a long, long time ago, maybe 25, 30 years ago. If you have a business and the business is of any size, you better be doing half of your business internationally. Because in the economy you just described, you can't just be a Tennessee business or a California business. You need to be a world business. So that's the first thing. When you look at scope and you look at your market, you need to look at it globally. The other thing is that you need to recognize that culture does 
play a part in your success. And that Asian culture, which tends to be particularly Chinese culture, more collectivist, is quite different than American, very individualistic culture. Mm-hmm. But that's really, a lot of people say, well, I failed because I really didn't understand Chinese and what have you. I think at the end of the day, there's just a few things that you need to know to be successful you know, as a leader. And the first thing is you need a model of leadership. And although there are some 60 models of leadership that academicians have put out there, I bet you if we tested a group of executives, they would flunk, they'd get a zero because they're not familiar with any one of them and don't use any one of them. It's, it's more um, a game that academicians play amongst ourselves. Uh, I have developed, however, a model which is so simple. Uh, Einstein, by, by the way, once said that if it's not really simple, you don't understand it. If you can't make it simple, if you can't say, well, the whole theory depends on just the insight that you can't go faster than light. If you start to work that into all your equations, then the theory of relativity just pops out. All you have to do is Newton's laws contemplate that speed could be infinite. It can't be infinite. It can't be faster than light. So if light is the fastest that anything can travel, well, just you and I working at MIT could say, hey, okay, B can't be faster than C. What do we do? Oh, so we make it explode. We come out with some little formula that makes it impossible because you increase the mass so much that it is impossible to move any faster. So my insight, not that it compares with Einstein, but it's also very, very simple. It says, look, leaders do only two things. They make judgments and they persuade people they made the right judgments. That's the core. And the next step is when they fail, basically regroup and try again. They retry. They do a loop and come back and start with a new judgment and a new persuasion. That's it. I just told you about leadership. And that's the core of persuasion. Judgment, persuasion, and then persistence, which I call grit, because then it sounds like JPG, which is the compression technique for photography, 10 to 1. Well, my compression technique is 10 million to 1. It compresses leadership to three words, J-P-G. And anything you can throw at me, Ram, you can try, throw anything at me, I'll tell you it fits in one of those three categories. Then you, if you, if you want to go to finer grain, you say, well, judgments about what? Well, there are a lot of things, but the two main judgments are about direction and about people. If you get your direction right and you see the opportunity and you select the right people, you got it made. You do have another step. You, to get those people to come along, you got to persuade them. And then to get the customers to buy your new product or your newfangled thing or your different thing, you have to persuade them. And then if you fail, you try again. Try try differently or try something else. That's it. That's business in a nutshell or leadership in a nutshell. When I look at business, you know that about seven out of ten businesses fail in the United States. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we spend a trillion dollars a year, about a trillion dollars a year, I estimate, on new business formation in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the 70% that fail, you know, the 700 billion, is more than the GDP of Saudi Arabia. See, getting into business is very easy, as you know, particularly in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Many people, therefore, presume that succeeding in business is easy as well. When I was at Stanford, I did a very extensive study. I think it's the largest study ever done, at least at that time, I think still today, of new product success and failure. We looked at 180 successes 
and 180 failures. Mm-hmm. And we did a bunch of analysis statistics because, you know, the numbers were there. And at least they're all high tech. I must put that caveat in. The vast majority of the failures were misreading of the market, thinking that you could do what XYZ companies doing down the street and succeed, or thinking that someone would really get excited about a toilet that talks to you. So I've had experiences in all those. I, for instance, my best student ever, uh, Rob Reese, developed a way for vinyl records, 45 RPM and 33 RPM, to be read by a laser. So the noise that is there because the edges of the record have dirt or because they're worn mm-hmm. was virtually eliminated. Fantastic technology. Mm-hmm. Except that's about the time that Compact Disc mm-hmm. came out. So uh-huh. rather than 200,000, we sold about 20 of them. That's an example of the power of technology and the market saying, no, we don't need that. So the venture failed. But one thing we concluded is that if you're going to do something, you better have a pretty good idea mm-hmm. of what the market is and where the market might go. And sometimes these people that are geniuses of that were able to forecast the market, you know, Ram, there's 100 people, 99 or 70 or 80 or whatever it is, all failed. One guy got it right. He might have been the guy who got it wrong. He was lucky that he hit the right way. The other thing is that one of the things you need to, and that was part of our experience in our venture, we started making Me Too integrated circuit amplifiers. We would have gone nowhere. But shortly after that, we saw an opportunity in the analog area, which is where we are, for multipliers. And our company was really built by multipliers. Mm-hmm. because that was distinctive. And then we saw that people didn't want to spend a lot of time adjusting the multipliers when we sent to them. So we deposited resistors on the multipliers and then had a laser trim them. So when they came in, you didn't need potentiometers. You didn't need a lot. Of, yeah, they were ready to go. So a venture has to pivot and has mm-hmm. to have, that's the second part of your decision. If you have really brilliant people, they very quickly say, hey, this isn't doing it. We're going to do something else. Well, I got this multiplier. Multipliers, yeah, okay. Who makes them? Very few people. Let's start making multipliers. I think that ventures fail because people don't understand the space that they're in. More often than not, that is a bigger problem than the people because the people you can fire and you can replace, and if you have really good people, it's going to work out. And uh, Ray Stata honored me about two years ago. He is the the founder of Analog Devices. Mm -hmm. He says that three men... The, at the time, the president of Analog Devices used to be my marketing director, Jerry Fishman. He and I were the three who built Analog Devices, which is a $5 billion Fortune 500 firm. And so good people, really talented people, and Jerry was certainly talented as a great. That is what makes the difference is they will pivot and they'll change and direct you in a way that will make you successful. So pivoting is definitely an important aspect. I agree with that. See, what I noticed is that the failure rate of businesses has not changed much in decades. Our understanding of business and technology and the education of the people who are in business is the most advanced in human history. But why hasn't the failure rate gone down in decades? That doesn't make sense. I don't have an answer for that, but I think a simple explanation might be that there are a lot more people now starting businesses than before. So you don't get the small group that had the motivation, the intelligence, the experience, and everything that it takes to be able to be able to make business successful. 
I have not given a great deal of thought to that, but I do think that both of the things that you said are true. But let's assume that there's two of us in 1900 starting mm -hmm. a business. Mm -hmm. The chances are neither you nor I have a business degree mm -hmm. or have any mm -hmm. kind of degree. At the turn of the century in 1900, it was 1%. At the turn of the next century, it was like 25%. So if we were starting a business in 1900, it would be Henry Ford or something like that. So the nature of the competition would be very different than now where everyone, and, and they focus on two or three people who didn't complete their studies like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and what have you. But for the most part, people starting business. In fact, we found in our research on new ventures at least in the high-tech space, that there was an optimal amount of education. Too much education, a PhD like me, eh, not that good. A bachelor's, not enough education. A guy with a master's, or maybe even two masters, much better. We found the sweet spot was a master's. The only problem is that the guy you're competing with is not Henry Ford in 1900 without a degree. It's another guy with a master's. So there may be a lot more people starting businesses, but there are a lot more educated thoughtful people, and not everybody can win. There's just a small number of people that can win. So I would say the competitiveness and also the fact that sometimes you're not competing against Juan or Billy or Pedro down the street. You're competing mm -hmm. against a chain or the CBS uh, or Walgreens that has already done this a thousand times, and you mm -hmm. come in with your little pharmacy. Well, first of all, I don't think pharmacy is a space that works, although Around here, I see, uh, you know, in Miami, Pedro's Pharmacy, you know, uh, so-and-so's family, a little tiny place, maybe because of geography, maybe because of service they provide, and they, they actually succeed. So I think it, it's a multivariate explanation. I think more people these days, you talk to my students, they all want to have their own business. Yeah, if they had that kind of education preparation. You know, in uh, 1920, man, they could be very successful. But today, they're going to go to against another, you know, 50 or 100 students that have the mm -hmm. same intention assignment. So the the landscape has changed considerably. We're all smarter. As you, you probably know about Flynn's work, the world is getting smarter. I don't know mm -hmm. whether I believe it, but uh, he has done extensive studies to show that IQs are going up, not big time, but slightly, you know, around the world. talk about the education system, and I know you're one of the leading experts on this. The current university education that a typical person gets, you got and I got, still mostly produces graduates to work for corporations, you know, as employees. Oh, yeah. Largely fitting one functional role, you know, whether it's finance, marketing, engineering, pick your thing, right? Mm -hmm. The business model that is growing, that is becoming more and more popular, not just in the U.S., but across the world is more and more businesses are hiring freelancers for short gigs, and they're not just hiring locally, they're hiring people from around the world. In such an economy, every individual becomes a business. You're Mitch Inc., I'm Ram Inc. How can universities prepare people differently to succeed in such an economy? A lot of people think that the best thing universities can do is to prepare, uh, let's say, a petroleum engineer who's an expert at petroleum exploration. I take the opposite view. I think what MIT did for me is it gave me a very broad education. You didn't get your bachelor's at MIT, right? No. 
at MIT, you had to go through, and a lot of guys hated this, 2101 to 2108 for all courses in the humanities. I learned philosophy. I learned about poetry. I learned about novels. I learned about British literature, about Russian literature. At MIT, it wasn't my choice. Hmm. I was told. You know, I didn't know enough to know what this stuff is in here, you know? So if you have a broad education, the other thing that MIT, I think, gives you, at least at the undergraduate level, to a significant extent also at the master's level, is the ability to, I figured when I got my PhD, I could solve anything. You gave me a problem, I can, you know, and MIT gave me the confidence to, to say, here's a way to approach the world and to analyze the world that would lead you to the appropriate conclusion. So if you can teach people who can speak appropriately, who can write appropriately, who can think in a broad context and understand the world around them, and in addition to that, have an approach to analyzing problems, uh, which comes almost second nature, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I'm an electrical engineer, and when I graduated from college, there were no jobs of any type. And a friend of mine's father said, hey, look, the only thing we have here is a little a production engineering job. Ah, that's me. That's just the thing for me. So I'm 22 years old, and I'm given responsibility for several manufacturing lines. And they're running at 30% where they should have been running in the 90s. And the production people absolutely didn't trust the engineers. So when I wanted to make a little change in the process, the number of forms, authorizations, checks that I had to make, I hadn't been prepared for any of that, but I was able to say, okay, uh -huh. what makes uh -huh. sense to do this? The other thing is, most importantly, it wasn't my interpersonal skills. It was that we made, they finally made the damn changes and the yield ju jumped from 30 to 60%. Mm -hmm. Now, the next time I went to the foreman and I said, give me more of those goddamn forms. I want to make another change. He said, kid, we don't need any forms. Tell me what you want me to do. <laughs> so the, and that's me as a production engineer. I know Dan, I didn't had one class, but I was an MIT graduate and I looked at the problem and I broke it down into pieces that yield A, B, C, D points, and you were losing them mostly between A and B, and then we're losing them between D and E. What's going wrong there? I mean, you know, just a, a way of thinking clearly. So I, I think if you had people like that, I think that they can shift with the winds of industry and with the geographical. Uh, although I agree, it's, it's pretty tough. You can't just do be an accountant, General Motors, and spend the whole life there in your accounting office. That, those days are gone. See, one thing I remember, Mitch, about, you know, when I walked away from MIT, I've given a number of talks, and one time somebody said, what is the one thing you got at MIT that you just didn't get anywhere else? That's a good question. Yeah. What do you answer? So, so I, I thought about this, and of course I was stumped when he asked me, and the thing that just welled up in my head was I said, the most important thing is MIT taught me how to learn. It doesn't matter if the situation adapts. You know, we have that confidence and we pivot and we kind of figure out another way of looking at the same problem. Like, like uh, I was thinking about one issue last December. I thought about it for nine weeks. That's all I was hmm. thinking about. And I didn't have an answer. And then I said, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And I said, let me do some inversion thinking. So I flipped both of them and I said, I was looking for external reasons and things that I was lacking. How about internal reasons and things that I have? 
might that be the reason why this thing happened? And guess what? Light bulbs started going off. I think it might be just like law school gives you a way to think about what's legal, what does the case say, what are the facts, what's the evidence, is there any variability in the law? I mean, there's a legal way to look at problems. Where's the liability? Where's the risk? I think MIT teaches you to develop a way to deal with problems. Yeah. Systematically yeah. break them down and analyze to what extent is technology, to what extent is it people, what, right? MIT, see, I can solve any problem in the world. And also, MIT does, if you make it through, give you a lot of confidence. Hell, I made it through MIT? Come on. You mean I can't take care of this? Come on. I can fix that. <laughs> see, that's confidence, but there's a fine line, and on the other side of it is arrogance. Let me tell you what my former trainer, great guy, Lou Deneen, told me. Um, I had another friend, I'm not going to mention his name. I was bench pressing 200 pounds, single rep, about mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. You might be surprised, I still can do it today. But I told a friend of mine 20 years ago, and he said, oh, I can do 250. Mm -hmm. He was younger than me. I said, well, heavier than me. I said, well, pretty impressive, okay, 250. So my trainer said, ask your friend. I'll call him Pedro, just to hell it. Ask Pedro if he'd come in and work out with us. Because, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes you're doing the bench press. You're not doing full extension. You're not bringing it to your chest. What do you count as a rep? That kind of thing. So mm -hmm. I talked to him. He said, well, you know, that was before my accident. I said, your accident? Yeah. He says, I strained a muscle on my right arm, and I wasn't in I said, what can you do now? He says, I'm about 120. Mm -hmm. So the conclusion of my trainer is it is an arrogance. If you can back it up. Arrogance, I think, is more when you overestimate your talents relative to the rest. A friend of mine took me to the Cape Cod Coliseum and said, the acoustics here stink. We can't. It's garbled, the whole thing. And I have a minor in acoustics. And I said, yeah, I can fix it. So I told him what to do. In two days, the thing was fixed. That isn't arrogance. Mitch, one question. You, you have a lot of experience. You've seen a lot of people and you've done academic research. You know, I'm not trying to play with words, but do you see a difference between people who are intelligent versus people who are smart? Well, that is more semantics uh, than anything. I hmm. do see a big difference between people who have a high G. G is the standard psychological measure of intelligence. Perhaps the smartest guy I ever met is Tony Lewis, who was a year ahead of me at MIT, even though he was the same age as I was. I got out of there ahead of him, started a company, became reasonably rich. Then I came to the university, and I got a call from Tony. He was an unemployed technical writer with a PhD in nuclear physics you know, from wow. MIT and wondered if we had anything for him. Unfortunately, I didn't because I think the world of Tony, and he, he was very helpful to me, so there's got to be something else other than intelligence because Tony had almost a monopoly on brilliance. Uh, he got 800 in all the SATs and the achievement test, just straight. So I think that there's a difference between the ability to work with people, the ability to relate to people, to understand people, to lead people, and the raw intelligence of someone who can analyze a bunch of variables and come up with a solution. But uh, smart and intelligent, I mean, that's a semantics game. I don't use those words other than interchangeable. That's a fair point. See, I looked at it a tad bit differently. You know, I equate intelligence. Everybody is born with intelligence of some level, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you may be a whole lot more intelligent when you were born than I was, you know, genetically, right? But then you develop certain set of capabilities in academics, in administration, etc., in entrepreneurship to take you to where you are. Those, those are skills. Those are capabilities. Capabilities. Yeah, skills okay. and capabilities are different than raw intelligence. Correct. So I do distinguish so, it in that correct. sense. Correct. So, so what I say is, if you think about business smart, somebody says, you know what, Mitch is really business smart. My view is that's a capability that Mitch has developed based upon his upbringing, his values, his beliefs, oh, yeah, sure. mental models, etc. Sure. And if Mitch can do it, I cannot become Mitch, but I can become more like Mitch. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would agree with that. Um, you, you know, business savvy, business smart. That's different than raw intelligence. Raw intelligence is measured in two primary ways. What is the depth of your vocabulary? When you look at your personal dictionary, how big is it? And two, how good are you at solving logical problems? Those are the two things that give you a high IQ. So someone with, uh, Tony had 182 IQ. Someone with 182 IQ has a massive vocabulary. And every question I would ask Tony about physics or about math, it was just like natural, like James dunking the ball. It just, I mean, he just goes in, boom, it's in the <laughs> easy. It's easy for him. You know, what LeBron does easily, Tony did easily intellectually. Not that LeBron isn't a smart guy, he's a smart guy, but Tony was, even at MIT, he was remarkable. Can we switch to leadership? Because that's your current focus as the executive director of the Center for Leadership at FIU. The traditional education system we talked about does not develop business-savvy people. We just talk about how to become business-savvy or business-minded or business-smart, right? Yet, in order to be an effective business leader, one, you need to be business-smart because otherwise you wouldn't be able to look across the enterprise and figure out how to increase value within your enterprise. But then you now have to lead a large group of people who are not business savvy. Well, let me ask you to draw, at least in your mind, two concentric circles. Yeah. Uh, Like a Venn diagram, they overlap each other. Okay. Uh, Who you are, Ram, as a person, your values, your energy, your attitude, your integrity, your interpersonal skills, your ability to communicate, that's all who you are. If I draw a circle as to who you are as a leader, you'll get 90% overlap over those two things. So what you're telling me is, yeah, people are born with a certain genetic potential, which, by the way, in my case, I've been extremely uh, fortunate to go to the best schools, to have a family that supported me, to have a house full of books, to have every... I am the product of how much you can squeeze the orange. I'm the Mm -hmm. squeezed one. There are others who may be just as talented, and they never had any. I've had all the opportunities. But that is one part, now that intellectual part. The other is who are you as a person? I mean, mm-hmm. let's assume you came from, say, a mafia family in the United States. You're dishonest. You learn that everything is about trickery and about duping people. And, yeah, you can get reasonably far as a leader, but when you're found out, you explode. Mm-hmm. So leadership is more than anything about who you are as a person. Hmm. So I can't teach you to be a different person. You come to me, those values, like, like for instance, I once, and I'll admit to this publicly, stole 
a pound of ham, dollar eighty nine from Atlantic and Pacific supermarkets. Mm -hmm. My grandmother would have absolutely condemned that, and that's for my value of honesty. I did it as a prank. Hey, could I get away with stealing some ham out of the store? And I did, mm -hmm. but it's haunted me. I have a number of times I've said to myself, I want to find out what the return on equity is of Atlantic and Pacific supermarkets, and I probably owe them fifty dollars or sixty dollars you know, from mm -hmm. that pound of ham that I mm -hmm. stole. But mm -hmm. the fact that you violate one of your values doesn't mean you don't have the value. I value tremendously integrity, honesty, and I get that. I know exactly where I got it from. I got it from my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And when I'm ever tempted to do something wrong, my grandmother's right there next to me saying, no, <laughs> that's not right. And and I think that who you are as a leader is absolutely congruent, or almost 100% congruent with who you are as a person. So this, I guess, is exactly what your six levels of leadership is based on. You know, the sociopath, the opportunist, the chameleon, the achiever, the builder, and the transcendent. Each one of them obviously has a different set of values. And I guess if you're one and if you want to, quote unquote, graduate and become a higher level, you need to embrace a different set of values. Psychopaths are characterized by having a tiny amygdala. So, mm -hmm. for instance, a psychopath, particularly the violent ones, could see them drilling holes into your skull while you're conscious. And I would be horrified just from seeing the goddamn drill. The psychopath mm -hmm. is, yeah, let's go to it. Come on. Let's do two drills. Let's drill the left and the right-hand side, you know, of his head. Why limit ourselves to one? And they really don't feel it. I mean, it's not that yeah, they're yeah. they're being evil and they're trying, you know, they just don't feel it. The biological issue, because there are people who have very small heads, and generally big heads correlate with high intelligence. It, huh. More than likely, a person with a little head is not that smart. There are exceptions, of course, but in huh. general... Okay, uh, so that's the way you were born. Small head, small amygdala. I mean, you know, these people aren't evil in what they do, but it's not that they're good people who set out to be evil. If you wanted to be a psychopath and you said, Mitch, you know about this, help me become a psychopath. I can't. Your amygdala is too large, you know, oh. and they have actually been able to relate psychopathy to a very small amygdala. There's a guy, I have a video, I almost like, don't like to show it in class, but there's this guy who raped and then strangled about 15 or 20 little boys in England. They asked him, when you were killing them, did you have any feelings for them? And the guy says, he's very serious. And he says, well, he says, there were a couple of them that were so expressive that I noticed the horror in their eyes as I was finishing strangling them. Think of that. Hmm. That's a psychopath. That is, hmm. by the way, that is a violent psychopath. We are not surrounded, but we—they're about one or two percent of people are psychopaths. The, what the psychopath will do, for no reason at all, you come in late to a meeting, and the psychopath will turn to the boss and say, "There's Ram, late again," and just push in that knife, even uh -huh. though there's no reason for it. Bad people do bad things to you because they want to get ahead and they want your job or something. Psychopath just does it because he has no feelings. So what I'm saying is that. Those levels, some you can't change, and mm -hmm. the one that 
is most uh, difficult or almost impossible to change is the psychopath. All the others, yes. I think that in general, the higher you go up our scale, the more likely it is that you'll be a better person, that you'll be working for the goodness of all. And in fact, I'm really excited, although it's a little controversial, to change the current title of the piece, Who Does a Leader Really Serve? That doesn't get people that excited. I'm thinking, and if I have my way, we're going to do this. Uh, the, the Sloan Management Review has to agree on the title. I'm thinking of saying, how good is your leadership? There are two interpretations of good. You can say how effective, okay? Or how yeah. good in terms of does it really benefit society? Because the psychopath benefits no one. Our next level, the egotist, at least benefits one person himself. You know, yeah. the chameleon yeah. benefits yeah. the guy he sucks up to and himself. That's two. Then we are calling the achiever the dynamo. We're really using the the dynamo is full of energy and does all kinds of things. Doesn't necessarily know where he's going, but he uh -huh. serves his group. He gets a goal. He gets a task. You know, like uh -huh. he might be the guy who's given the charge of building the wall between Mexico and the United States. He'll uh -huh. build that wall. Okay. Uh -huh. Then the builder is someone who says, does this make sense for the entire organization, for the entire institution? And finally, the transcendent like Mandela and Gandhi, uh, you know, are people who are committed to the greater good of society. So the higher you go, and we, we've tried not to make it into a linear scale mm -hmm. level, but different, mm -hmm. but the number of the level, one, two, three, four, or six, roughly is proportional to how many people you benefit. See, one thing your model reminded me of is, you know, I've interviewed over a hundred people, like I said, and mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that popped out in my head over time is that people who are legacy-minded were more successful in business than people who are not. So, so in other words, in your model, the achiever is somebody who says, I need to make $10 million or $100 million, whatever your number is, right? And if it's or only focused... Million, 10 million widgets. Or 10 million widgets, whatever your numeric goal is. For goal, yeah. Uh, once you achieve it, you feel empty. I give people this example. When I was younger, I climbed Mount Rainier. And guess what? I climbed Mount St. Helens, then I climbed Mount Rainier, and then I climbed Mount Whitney, which is the low, uh, highest oh, uh, mountain God, yeah. in the lower 48. Yeah, you know how many me. mountains I climbed after that? None. Zero. Because I had this goal set, and once I achieved it, I didn't have another one to look to. Yeah. Because the yeah, next, yeah. next higher one is McKinley in Alaska, and that's a crazy difficult one. Whereas if I said, I enjoy climbing mountains, so then mm -hmm. I say, I enjoyed climbing Mount St. Helens. I enjoyed climbing Whitney. I enjoyed climbing Rainier. Now, what other mountains can I climb to get the same enjoyment? So yeah. people who succeed in business enjoy being in business as opposed to simply saying, I need to make 10 million. Because when they make that 10 million, they hit a wall. You're absolutely well. You know, Steve Jobs' famous statement at the commencement ceremonies at Stanford was something along the lines, only work on what you love and you'll never really work. And to me, building this university is something I really love. It gives you a very fulfilling feeling. Uh, and to give you one little aspect of that is I established schools of engineering, architecture, law, and medicine over a decade, which I call the golden decade of FIU. And there's only one other university president in the history of the United States that has established schools of law, architecture, and medicine. Only one. Hmm. He's deceased, 
and his name is Thomas Jefferson. That's because it takes a long time to establish one of those schools. You have to be president for a long time, and you have to have a lot of support to get it done. And I was here, as you mentioned, for a very long time, and we were able to get it done. A lot of people helped this. It's by no means uh, an individual achievement, but at least I was president at the time. We did it all in 10 years. We, we also are the university. became a research-intensive university fastest in the history of the United States, 28 years. Opened in 1972, and the year 2000, I was president, and we were listed as a highest research university. So you look back on that, and you feel pretty good. Mitch, let me ask you this. You were born in Cuba, and you were educated almost entirely here, you know, your bachelor's, master's, yeah. and, uh, mm-hmm. PhD. You've taught here. So as you look back, what is the one thing that you heard or learned when you were young that is guiding you in your life today? Well, my mother told me when I was 11 or 12 years old that she was going to send me to this elite private school in Havana uh, called mm-hmm. Ruston Academy. To this day, it's the best school I've ever been to, better than MIT, Harvard, and Stanford, where mm-hmm. I've also gone because of the commitment of the teachers to the students. For instance, um, my math professor, um, you know, had a PhD in mathematics and physics uh, hmm. in high school. My history professor had a PhD in history and philosophy from the University of Heidelberg in Germany. I mean, you know, we're talking, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Class size of my history class, seven. Wow. And the, the professor, Boris Goldenberg, would come in. One day he was Metternich, another day he was Emperor Franz Joseph, another day and he would come in and act out those characters. Uh, he was hmm. multilingual European. And so my mother said, we're sending you here because this is way before Castro took over. Not way, but mm-hmm. people didn't even think of Castro. He said, you know, everything could change her someday. And she'd certainly been through a number of changes in her life. She says, but the one thing you'll always have that you'll be able to, that's portable, that'll go with you, is your education. I am where I am. And if it, people give me MIT, PhD, oh, you must be brilliant. So I don't even have to show anything. Just, I mean, what else can I tell you? There's actually a, uh, uh, not a joke, but a story that says, you know, what Harvard sells is class, a ticket to the upper class, your Harvard uh, doctor, your Harvard lawyer, or, you know, whatever. You had a ticket to the upper class. And then we at MIT started to say, well, what the hell do we offer? So my university here, you know, sells tickets to the middle class which we're very proud to do because it's a very big class. So hmm. then, what does MIT do? Well, well, after a lot of thinking, MIT sells certified brilliance. In other words, <laughs> yeah. Think, think about it. it. We were, of course, talking, <laughs> talking at the PhD level, but, uh, you know, it, it's true about, in other words, how many dumb MIT PhDs have you ever met? I have a friend here. He's not a policeman now. He was a policeman but graduated from a very shady school where they give you credit for life experience and what have you. And mm-hmm. he says, I'm not going to mention the name of the school, but the other one I'll belittle it. But he says, I'm not just a dumb policeman. And imagine that. I'm not just a dumb MIT PhD. You mm-hmm. know, they don't exist, this guy. You know how many hoops you have to go through to get out mm-hmm. on the other on the other side? Sometimes I look back and I say, man, I think I could do that today. That's pretty good. 
you know, these used to be, you know. So, so I, I, I think that my school, however, I, uh, in contrast to a lot of other guys, I breezed through the first year at MIT because I was uh, very, very well trained at my uh, prep school. So mm-hmm. my mother made a sacrifice financially, and she sent me to the very best school in Cuba. I think that's one lesson. The, the other, which is related you know, to that one, I don't really know exactly where I got this one from, and that is I have always had a very strong work ethic. If I join up with you, I'll work very hard, hmm. no matter what it is. I mean, you, you know, I had no interest in as a production engineer, nor did I see a career for one minute. But I worked very hard to get those lines. Oh, I didn't tell you the result. By the end of the summer, I was there three months, my lines, which were all the dead, the, the, the disastrous lines, were running at a higher yield than all the other lines making similar products in the company. We were doing hmm. 95 96%. So they got wow. their money's worth. They're paying me peanuts. And uh, then at the end of the summer, they said, we'd love for you to stay and we'll double your salary. Double it. Huh. Three huh. months. I said, no, I'm going to go back to MIT to get my PhD. Whether that was a good decision or a dumb decision depends on your values. My mother was a teacher. My father was a teacher. My father had a doctorate in education. But they both went to normal schools. They both became teachers. So <laughs> my aunt was a teacher. My aunt was superintendent of public schools in the state of Havana, the province of Havana. So I got teachers, you know, all over the place. So Mitch, as you look back at your illustrious uh, life, what do you want to be known for? I would like to be known as the man who built FIU and who helped FIU become one of the nation's leading public universities. My father's epitaph said he was a friend of his friend. And I hope that they'll be able to say that of me also. And I think I am a friend of my friends. My friends aren't always friends of mine, but until further notice, I'm always their friend. I think FIU will go through ups and downs, and it will yeah. assume its rightful place as the, basically, we're, we are, if you want to understand who we are, we're the University of Florida at Miami. I yeah. was not able to get that name, but that's what we are. It's just like University of California at Los Angeles. It's the big urban public university in the big city in the state. That's us. I think that sort of looking back, looking forward, I want to be known as someone who made a significant contribution to the field of leadership. And that's what, if I weren't talking to you now, that's what I'd be working on right now. No, it's befitting that uh, the main campus at FIU is named after you. Well, it has its pluses and minuses. Let me tell you, I I, I was talking to a young student recently, and and, and someone mentioned that my name was the name of the campus. The guy says, I thought you were dead. <laughs> and then the other thing that I do is I say, well, you know, my mother had the foresight to name me after this campus. And some people say, wow. That's, uh, and I'm saying, and by the way, you shouldn't be a student here if you believe that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but see, it actually shows the foresight of the trustees of FIU in naming the campus after you while you're alive. Because most people get accolades after they are dead, which yeah. they can never hear and never, uh, yeah. you know, they cannot enjoy the glow, you know? Well, it was the only time, I always knew exactly what was going on on the board, the only time they surprised me. I did not mm-hmm. expect it. And the mm-hmm. whole thing, I timed it pretty much. It took, you know, under 60 seconds. A wealth transfer of some $150 million because the 
the value that is injected into my name daily is incredible. Hmm. You know, hundreds of thousands of emails go out with the name of the campus. You yeah. can't buy it. And, and, it's, and it's not for being crooked or for having stolen something or uh, these days for sexual harassment. It's for uh, having done something well, something good. So. I understand. Perfect. So, uh, so Mitch, uh, many, many thanks for taking time to come on Business Thinking Radio. Oh, thank you for your interest. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I enjoyed our discussion. And uh, there are many more things that I've even written out that I wanted to talk to you about, but perhaps another podcast. We'll do it again. We can do it again. No problem. <laughs> thanks for listening to Business Thinking Radio. If you'd like to comment on this episode, please send an email to podcast at businessthinking.com. This is Ram Ayer signing off. Thank you for listening to the Ram Ayer Podcast. Every week, we bring you the thought-provoking and practical conversations to help you become better, smarter, and more successful, helping you achieve your personal greatness. All from the perch of Ram Ayer, the thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. If you want to comment on this episode, please email us at podcasts at mitramayer.com. If you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit www.mitramaya.com forward slash podcasts or find the Ram Aya podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever fine podcasts are uploaded.